Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I am the publisher on Women's Agenda. Now, I don't have a co-host with me to introduce straight up. The format of this episode will be a little different as I speak to someone about their career, work and a book that looks set to change how we think about social movements and one of the greatest challenges of our time, if not the greatest challenge, climate change. That person is climate scientist and author, Dr. Joelle Gerges. Thank you for listening. Hello there. As mentioned, I don't have a co-host with me today, but I will be joined by a special guest and author in just a moment. But before I do introduce her, I wanted to just make a quick note about some of the things that we are covering on Women's Agenda this week. The National Jobs and Skills Summit is in full swing in Canberra, and it's really highlighting opportunities to address the 14.1% national gender pay gap, as well as women's workforce participation and the barriers that are currently existing in terms of us being able to prove on that rate. Now, one thing that we have learnt in the lead up to this summit is that four of the top 10 most in-demand professions of the next five years happen to be in the care economy, and they all happen to be female-dominated. They are sectors that are significantly underpaid. They are significantly undervalued, despite being celebrated as the front line during the COVID pandemic. And they are sectors that are reporting high rates of burnout and intentions to leave. So I'm talking about nursing, childcare workers, early childhood educators, and aged care workers. Now, across nursing and early childhood education at least, we know that around three quarters of workers there are reporting intentions to leave over the next few years. So it is clear that we have a problem and it's something that we need to constantly consider in any discussion about women's workforce participation. We need to focus on and address these rates of burnout and attrition. Just as we are attempting to upskill more people to assist with the shortages that are to be expected across these areas also. And just like we're trying to get more women and girls into STEM, we also need to get more boys and men into care. So you can see some of what we're covering on Women's Agenda in terms of what is occurring at that summit and in terms of trying to address this skills crisis and trying to look at some of these real feminized workforces, like we say, they are underpaid, they are undervalued, they are reporting high rates of burnout and they are reporting significantly high rates of intentions to leave. Go and find more on all of that on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also sign up to our daily newsletter. Now to this conversation and our guests today. Now, Dr. Joelle Gerges is a climate scientist and a lead author on the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on the Climate Change's Sixth Assessment Report, which delivered a global state-of-the-art review of climate change science and really jolted world leaders and the media to pay attention on its release. Joelle has just published a stunning new book, sharing some of the IPCC science and her work on the panel, but also issuing a call to action, saying, it's not too late, that we can connect the heart to the head. And massive social and cultural change is not only possible, but it's actually a really beautiful opportunity for all of us to play an individual part in coming together to create a much better future. The book is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. And I spoke to Joelle earlier this week. Now to that conversation. 
Thank you so much for joining me, Joelle. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And especially just as you're kicking off your book tour for such an important book at this time. So thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Angela. Joel, I guess my first question that I want to ask you about is just how somebody becomes an IPCC scientist. Sure. So it certainly doesn't happen overnight. So we, we are selected based on our contribution to the research literature. So all of us are research scientists that have contributed original research to our fields. And then many of us um, are sort of leading experts in that area of, of, of climate variability and climate change. And then effectively what happens is that governments nominate a, a range of different scientists and then there's a group of people that get selected to serve as lead authors. So in the sixth assessment report, which is the report that I was involved in, there was over a thousand uh, nominations and about 200 scientists were selected uh, from about 60 different countries around the world. And I was one of the 12 from Australia. And so effectively what, I'm, what you do as an IPCC scientist is that you contribute your expertise to this review process, which is effectively a really big synthesis of the state of the planet, really. And so that's basically what happens. So you have to have expertise in the area. Um, and then they're also looking for geographical coverage. So we don't want to make sure that we, we've got coverage from different parts of the world. But having said that, there are very few people from much of the Southern Hemisphere and the Southwest Pacific, which actually includes Australia as well, that I think is only around about 10% of people uh, from that part of the world. So, and there's mm. even fewer women as well. So I think there were around about um, 25% of authors this time were women. Yeah. So improving, but still a male-dominated process, but they are looking to improve the inclusion and diversity of authors. But that's basically what happens yeah, and my next question was going to be about the gender breakdown there and obviously the international diversity that is so necessary there too. I know that there has been some criticism of that in the past and he said that the 25% was an improvement, so that does certainly sound like there's more work to do. And that's also that sense of going into COP26 where we also look at the representation of women and, again, ensuring that different parts of the world get a fair share of representation as well. As a, a woman in this field, have you found that you've been able to connect with other female scientists? And I mean, even being a female scientist in itself comes with its challenges. We know that the representation of women in science isn't where it should be either. Absolutely. I mean, you're already a minority um, when you are a woman um, that's working in the area of um, science. But to be honest, in the Australian climate science community, there's, a, there's quite a good diversity of people, which is really good, I think. But at the IPCC level, at the UN level there, uh, yeah, we're still looking at quite a bias that's in place. But the, the women that are there are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, they are just <laughs> incredible people, right? Because as you know, women do take on a lot of different projects all at once. And um, But I also think that what we do, and I certainly found in my group, I think I provided a little bit of glue, sort of social glue uh, for the group in a sense, because sometimes, you know, if you, you bring a whole bunch of really intelligent people into the room, male dominated, sometimes the egos go a little bit, you know, overdrive, but sometimes it's sort of bringing things back down to what's relatable, what can we achieve collectively and so on. That's not to say there aren't big personalities also within the, the female sort of cohort, but uh, I think by and large, women are really collaborative and um, look to try and join things up together. Uh, I certainly did my best to do that in my, my chapter team. Yeah. And I mean, collaboration really is the, uh, it just has to happen with, with this crisis. 
So when the reports came out, I do my best to read as much as I could at that time. And I recall writing a few stories on women's agenda. And I spoke to you about this just prior to recording and saying that it's it's not the easiest topic to engage people on. And I know that there's a lot of underlying issues as to why that is the case. And part of it could be that it's just too confronting and too difficult to think of. But, you know, part of it also is upon reading a lot of into this, I found it very emotional and difficult as well. I believe I actually at one point had my own solo moment of sitting and crying, basically reading this and thinking about the stats and just considering just how much has to be done if we're if we are going to prevent the worst of, of global warming and, and some of those figures that come out in, in these reports. How is it actually working on it for you? And I know you go into a lot of this in your book, and this is part of the reason why it's so excellent, because you do bring the emotion into it, whereas other scientists maybe haven't done that. But I don't think we can sit back and not have emotion on this topic anymore. How was that feeling for you? How, how did you cope with that as you were learning these things and piecing these parts all together? Yeah, look, that's a really, really good question. And I think just to say that, you know, your response to the material is really rational. So when you actually look at the hard numbers and the reality and the stark reality of the situation, it is really overwhelming and it can be really distressing when you are talking about, you know, destabilising the ice sheets and all of the the flow-on effects of, you know, inundation of low-lying areas, the displacement of people, escalating extremes, it can get very, very overwhelming. And I think with the IPCC experience, and certainly my um, experience of, of this process, is that because you're looking, you're working at that UN level, you're, you're looking at every single region of the world. So in the past, you know, as an Australian scientist, I mean, I'm known for my Australian expertise in sort of southern hemisphere climate variability as well. But all of a sudden, you've got this big global jigsaw puzzle, and you're placing all of those different pieces. And all of a sudden, things just snap into view, and you can really see the full planetary scale issue that we're facing. And it is really overwhelming, right? So just the sheer volume of work. And just to give your listeners an indication of the detail. So for instance, in the report I was involved in, there are about 13 chapters. And each of those chapters are about 80,000 words. So you're looking at a report that is well in excess of a million words. And then there are three main volumes and there are three other supplementary volumes. And so no wonder people are feeling really overwhelmed by this. So yes, coming back to your question, it's a really overwhelming process. And I think for me, in terms of my own experience with it, there were certainly times where it was really a difficult process because I think, although I'm acutely aware of how serious the situation is, to be able to see how it's unfolding all over the world was a whole other layer. And so that was what really compelled me to write this book was just realising that I had so much information at my fingertips. I'm, I'm in a really privileged position as an Australian scientist uh, and I wanted to share that far and wide. So instead of, you know, working on another research paper or teaching another university course, I really feel that trying to distill everything that people like me know into an easily digestible format but also taking us through not just the science, but also taking us into that emotional response and also the cultural response that needs to come about. So the way I like to refer to it in the book is connecting your head with your heart. So for me, it isn't just enough to intellectually understand something. We need to have a visceral emotional response. And maybe that's where I think my writing, I hope, is, is starting to open up space for others because I have started to share 
my own response to my work as a climate scientist. And a lot of that's come about from editors contacting me from places like The Monthly or The Guardian or The Saturday Paper, and they're wanting me to provide commentary about how do we make sense of what's happening. And so I think that these events like the Black Summer bushfires or the catastrophic floods on the East Coast, people are trying to find meaning and, and, and make sense of it and how does it connect. And so I realised that those pieces that I was writing were really connecting with people and I realised that it's not that people don't care about this, it's that sometimes they're emotionally overwhelmed or there are conversations going on out there that they don't feel they can be a part of. And so this is what where I really, really hope that a book like this is just a bit of fuel for the social movement out there, that there's a role for absolutely everyone to play. You don't have to be a climate scientist. You don't have to even be a full-on climate activist or anything like that to make a difference in terms of being part of this um, critical mass that's going to shift our cultural values around whether we're okay with uh, really seeing the destruction of the natural world and the stability of the climate system in our lifetime. I mean, this is the thing, right? So I think a lot of people think about climate change and they think about it as something happening in 2050 or at the end of the century, and that feels really abstract. But I've often said to journalists, uh, particularly increasingly lately, is that we only really have to look at our lived experience of the last few years in this country to understand what climate change looks like in this country. So looking at the black summer bushfires, looking at the catastrophic floods of the East Coast, this is basically how it will start to play out and how it is playing out. And these back-to-back extreme weather events that become really hard for communities to, to bounce back from. So I guess that's um, a pretty thorough answer to your question, but I hope that helps. Yeah, it certainly does. And I mean, I like this idea that everyone has a part to play because it can sort of feel, you can feel powerless a lot of the time. And especially if, you know, maybe you don't have the money to invest in solar panels or an electric car, or all these things that you're sort of told to do as a consumer, which would be fantastic if you can afford to do those things. But, and then it feels powerless at the political level. We did see some change, obviously, you know, kind of a decade, I guess, of inaction. We are starting to see some action, but then there's some issues there that we might say, even from the past week of what we've learnt about certain approvals around the coastlines that really shouldn't have happened, which we thought may have been better from this current government. But I like that idea of everyone has a part to play. And I think that comes into media. I see that as the publication that we have on Women's Agenda and as journalists and editors that in so many ways, every story is a climate story. And We obviously write about gender equality and women in leadership and the gender pay gap. And internationally, we'll look at rates of forced and child marriage and we'll look at girls' education and all these pieces. And I just think we need to look at it in this view that so much of the progress there will go backwards if we're not, well, we will go backwards as a result of climate change. And we need to try and mitigate as much as we can of that, but there's some parts that we need to adapt to as well but we can't really talk about these things and talk about gender equality and women's empowerment and all these things that we think we're just on this linear progress line for when we know that we're not and we know that climate change will set so much of this this backwards so I guess I say that in the sense of that that idea that everyone has a role to play that people can bring that into their organization into whatever piece of whatever the workforce they are anywhere that we can all be talking about climate change we can all be considering our individual impact but we can also all be considering that that community idea and and how we vote and how we mobilize and things like that to really try and push for change and something better 
Absolutely. So many interesting things in what you've just said there. But at the heart of it, we're talking about equality. And I think climate change really is an issue of inequality. And when you start to look at the numbers, and I break them down in the book, is, is you start to find that the westernized world has really exploited uh, the developing world in terms of just our wealth and our economic power comes about from the exploitation of resources from poorer countries. And so that in itself, we need to stop and think about redefining what that looks like. And so that's why I'm talking about it being more of a cultural and a social issue, is basically saying that we have sort of coming off the back of this sort of human history of colonialism and all this inequality. And, and really, that's not working for us anymore. And I think what's happening right now is, is that it's really coming to a head. Climate change is bringing out all these structural issues that are underlying the way that society has um, ended up, if you like. So where we are right now is a cumulative experience of everything that's come before us. So the atmosphere has, is now loaded with carbon and it's really starting to destabilise the planet. But also we're looking at the legacy of colonialism and inequality. And these are things that we have the power to change. And the first thing I think is bringing a real awareness to that initially and understanding that a lot of what's going on right now is not right. And I think most people would agree that they would like to grow up or bring their children up in a more just and equal world. And that is sort of intergenerational change. And so when we talk about climate change, I'm really a big believer in this, is that I really think that this intergenerational change really starts at home in terms of the things that we value. So, you know, if you're someone that has children, you can instill those values of protection of the environment and valuing other people and all that sort of stuff. And that lays the foundation for a generation of people growing up with really different values that you exploit someone who's weaker than you or less resourced than you and that sort of thing. And also that the natural world isn't just an open sewer, just absorbing all of our waste, right? And so that's a values thing. And when it, it turns out, and I write about this in the book, this is nothing new to the Indigenous people all around the world, right? They, they understand that our environment sustains us and that we are a part of nature. And so I think it really comes back down to the things we collectively value. And so in terms of um, exercising your political power and your consumer power as well, and I think that the federal election that we've just seen here in Australia is an example of communities really stepping up and saying enough is enough. You know, if you think about the community-led independence and the success of those campaigns, which are very much grassroots, kitchen table meetings, really activating local communities, but a lot of them are really strong, articulate, switched-on women who are basically saying we want to address gender equality, we want to address climate change, we want to address corruption and integrity in our political systems. And it was just extraordinary to see everybody really come behind them and um, support them. And so I believe that we are witnessing this really exciting moment in Australian politics where we can start to do things differently. That's not to say it's a done deal, but actually when you look back over the course of human history, it never is a done deal. We are, every single generation has to fight for an inch, inch forward. So whether it's for the rights of women, we're still not there yet. I don't need to tell you about all the inequalities around sort of gender pay gaps and so on and so forth. Those issues, they need active work on them. It's the same thing with the climate. So I, I guess my, my point is there is that so, this is the story of social movements throughout our history. And so this is yet another one, but it does give me hope because there comes a social tipping point where the critical mass tips the system into a new way of being and we do see these big changes. I mean, obviously we need more and more people, 
But it turns out there's some research that I quote in my book where you only really need about 25% of people to change a social norm. So once enough of a critical mass gets it and decides and says enough is enough, we want things to be different, then the rest of the people follow because a lot of people are influenced by the people around them. Uh, but it's also those thought leaders and our leadership community around us, uh, our community leaders, our business leaders, all the different sorts of um, leadership that we see around us that really sets the tone for other people who might be completely inundated with their sort of um, daily life and dealing with wrangling kids and all that sort of stuff. Not everyone has the same capacity. But if you get behind someone who is prepared to put their hand up and, and, and go into the political arena or get behind uh, a renewable energy company and switch over, or get behind, you know, trying to reduce your own emissions through electric vehicles or whatever it might be, or what you actually eat. That's another really massive one in terms of meat consumption. There's so many different things you can do, but ultimately the most powerful thing you can do is exercise your political power. So right now in Australia, we have seen this really, really exciting shift, but you're right. We've also still got over a hundred different fossil fuel projects slated in this country. And until we remove the social license for that, we're not going to change course in a meaningful way. So the battle is not over, but we do have people in parliament now that are sitting there that we have put there that are representing our values around saying, no, we actually don't want to burn fossil fuels to the bitter end. We want to create a habitable and a thriving future for the young people alive today, but also as we are the generation living through this instability, we need to show leadership and courage in the face of these entrenched forces. Mm. Uh, I have so many places I can go from your last response, and but I'm mindful of your time. But I guess I'm looking at you know this idea of the tipping point, the social tipping point, the 25%. I'm like, surely we've got more than a quarter now. And looking at the you know the rise of those independents and thinking about how the, the difference they can make in this current parliament, but then also the difference that will be made in future parliaments as well, in state parliaments, as we're sort of seeing a groundswell around that in New South Wales um, just now. But where I want to go is just asking about the fact that since you participated in this work and and since the sixth assessment came out a lot more has happened so the Lismore floods which I know is close and connected to you Uh, the European heat wave further flooding just you know today uh, this week in in Pakistan so in one sense I'm wondering is a social tipping point coming because more people are impacted and directly impacted or are seeing it but there's also that sense of how what if we become immune to these stories as well and just see them as just part of the core of life now? But I guess where are you now in terms of hope, optimism? Do you feel better now or are you seeing, given how much has happened just in the past six months in terms of climate-related disasters, are you like, come on, we just need to just make this happen and move fast? Absolutely. I mean, there's just been a string of escalating extremes in, in recent months. And, and part of what I write about in, in my book is, is the unfolding of some of these events as I was actually working on the IPCC report and also just finishing up the book, which ends with the Lismore floods happening. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there is increased awareness because literally climate change is barreling through our front door. And I think in Australia, a real tipping point, I think, was the Black Summer bushfires on the East Coast, where most people were impacted in some way, whether they were holed up at home because of the air quality, whether they knew people had been evacuated, so on and so forth. Or just for them, were really disturbed by the fact that 
you know, we saw 25% of Australia's forests burnt in a single bushfire season and about 3 billion animals either killed or displaced. And now the koalas actually become an endangered species on the East Coast and could become extinct within 30 years. Now, as an Australian, that's, that's extraordinary stuff to take in. And for most of us, the thought of the koala becoming extinct in a country like Australia is unacceptable to most people, right? And so I do think that there has been this increased awareness because, unfortunately, the situation is now so bad that it is really all around us and it's just so clear to see. So along with that comes, well, you know, with the IPCC, we basically say after looking at all the evidence, you know, there are instabilities in the climate system, but how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. And to me, that is a positive message. Now, there's a lot of really confronting material in the IPCC, for instance, um, you know, that once you start to tip ice sheets, they start to melt. And that's a, that's a process that goes on for centuries. It's something you can't exactly turn around quickly. And so those things will play out. But once we stabilise emissions, temperatures do ta- stabilise in line with that. So that is actually really positive. And that brings us back down to the social tipping point. Because in terms of the science, trust me, there's no other information you need. After the sixth assessment report, honestly, there's nothing else that our scientific community can provide you guys with. That is the evidence that's there. It's only going to continue to strengthen. And basically what we're saying is that it is the direct implementation of the Paris Agreement that's really going to get us out of this mess. So that means enacting strong and meaningful climate policy Uh, And not delaying it and thinking that, oh, we can start to, you know, decarbonise later on in the century. No, it's actually going to be too late then. This is why they call this next 10 years the critical decade, because really we need to start to, you know, halve emissions really by 2030 and then really be getting to net zero by 2050 to to really look at trying to avert, avert the worst aspects of climate change. So that brings us back down to very much a political and social systems, which is not the remit of science, to be honest. But it is the remit of um, leaders out there in the communities that they are a part of, whether it's business community or wherever they may be plugged into. And that's why I feel ultimately it's an optimistic moment. And earlier you referred to, you know, just the way that the, the media portrays the issue and all that sort of thing. I think we need to start telling better stories. We need to have more positive narratives about what's possible. So, so far, I feel like there's a bit of a destructive degenerative kind of conversation rather than a regenerative and inspiring vision of what our future could be like. And in a country like Australia, we could be a renewable energy superpower. We can restore ecosystems, our relationship with Indigenous people. And that can go on in various different parts of the world. So it's this moment to right the wrongs of the past. And that's, in fact, why I've called the the book Humanity's Moment, because it is about stepping into that highest part of ourselves that wants to do the right thing. And trust me, I think a lot of people do want to do the right thing. It's easy to say, oh, no one cares or it's all, you know, no one cares about this or there's too many people that just want to see the destruction of the planet and all this sort of thing. I don't believe it. I think we've got to get this 25% critical mass activated. And right now that is quite active in Australia, but we've got work to do and there's no time to waste. So as I said, this book is really written to help fuel the social movement because it's beyond what I can do as a scientist, but I know that there are communities out there with all their networks and their political power and their consumer power that can turn this around. And so ultimately, it's a very challenging moment. I'm not going to be, you know, Pollyanna-ish around this. It is it's difficult, right? But it is worthwhile and it will that will create meaning in your life that I think is, is really uh, 
something that's a bit of a deeper thing to think about, like what is it to be human at this moment in time and how do you choose to show up in this moment? And ultimately, I think there's a lot of power in that. And if you keep thinking about that and that one day in the future we'll look back at this moment as all the other great social movements in our history and this being this tipping point, pivotal moment where the dominoes started to cascade and we finally got there in the end. But we're still in the push phase of it needs to happen. The push phase of, yeah, incredible opportunity for all of us to play a part in humanity's moment. It is the perfect title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I really think it's, it's and what I love about it is that it is so inclusive. It's everybody has something to contribute to this moment, whether it's through the way that you raise your children to have the values that do protect nature and care for one another and don't sort of reinforce these um, inequalities that are in our society or whether you're somebody that has a lot of political power if you're a business leader and you can think about the way that your business operates or the boardrooms you operate in, how you choose to make those decisions, or you're a teacher thinking about the way that you teach the next generation about um, the science of this uh, climate change. And I'm hoping that a book like this arms people who aren't scientists, you don't have to be a scientist to read this book. That's exactly, the scientists don't need to read this book. It's, <laughs> it's the non-scientists that need to read the book uh, because, like mm. I said, I think all these social and cultural changes will come about from, from our communities. And ultimately, that's a really positive thing. And I think if we can reframe that and think about all the ways in which we can do that, that becomes an exciting moment to step up to. Mm. Not about what we lose, rather what we can gain. Mm. Yeah, but but ultimately, I do think we do need to be in touch in terms of um, with what we have to lose and what we are losing. Because for me, at least, that is a big motivator. Because you know, we live in this extraordinary country that is Australia, where we have the highest number of unique plants and animals than anywhere on the planet, even more than places like Brazil or Madagascar or Papua New Guinea. These places that you think, oh wow, they're just these like rich places that are amazing. Australia is extraordinary and we have the oldest continuous living culture in the world I mean it couldn't get more better in terms of the opportunity to really be a, a stand for what's possible here and so I think as, as Australians we, we we could do amazing things in this country. Joelle thank you so much for sharing your time and thank you for your book the book tour is kicking off it is called Humanity's Moment a Climate Scientist Case for Hope and I certainly think you have delivered on that case for hope right now. So <laughs> thank you. Um, all the best with the upcoming tour dates. And I hope that we can chat again very soon. It's my pleasure, Angela. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you to Joelle for joining me on the Women's Agenda podcast. And thank you for listening. Joelle's book is Humanity's Moment, a climate scientist case for hope. A reminder that you can find all the stories that we've been discussing on this episode and more on Joelle's book on Women's Agenda at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Thank you for listening.